Real Life Real Crime is a true crime podcast brought to you by Woody Overton and executive producer Toby Templey. sexual nature it should be for people that are 18 years or older heed my warning people i do not get the facts of these cases off the internet or from some television show the facts we're retelling you were presented to us by the victims of the crimes or the perpetrators who committed the crimes against the victims my description of the crime scenes are what i saw with my own two eyes if you're going to get offended, please turn this podcast off now. Thank you. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Real Life, Real Crime, the podcast. As always, I'm your host, Woody Overton. And today, I'm going to be continuing the series, Nanny Nut. This will be part three. The first installment I called The Prelude. The second installment called The Search. Today's installment is going to be called The Investigation. And I want to tell everybody, again, first and foremost, thank you for listening to Real Life, Real Crime, the podcast. Thank you for sharing, liking us, patron members. Thank you for your support. Patreon members, all these documents, as I work through the case, are going to be put up on the patron-only Facebook page. Y'all, it's vandalism tearing up. Okay, so stay tuned at the end of today's show for more real-life, real-crime announcements. And with that, we're going to get started. All right, when I left you last, everybody was looking for the baby, Matthew Populus, who, y'all, if you hadn't heard the other parts, please go back and listen to him before you hear this or you're not going to understand and remember, this is the first time that I have the entire case file. So I am raw and unscripted, but there's so much information in this file that you, you're going to hear me flipping some pages today, and, and that's okay because it's all important and it's a, uh, there's a method to the madness. But I left you last. Matthew had gone, had disappeared from Evelyn McKnight's residence, the nanny, where she was watching him overnight. And the detectives had responded. Everybody and their brother responded for the search, which was going on for days and nights, nonstop. It's a national media case, and this is before social media and all that. So it was all TV channels, y'all. I mean, the Internet really wasn't kicking hard yet at this time. and you know, Nobody had the cell phones and the instant gratification that we have nowadays on, on news, et cetera. Uh, no social media, no Facebook and all that, right? But it's a big deal. It's it's nationwide news. This 22-month-old baby disappeared from the residence. Did he walk off? Was he abducted? We don't know, right? But there's the one thing you can never stop doing is searching for him until you find him whether it's abduction or he walked off or whatever. So last week when I was telling you all about the search and everything and all the efforts that's going into it and, and the initial stories from the people who were at the residence when 
Matthew disappeared. I just, you know, got into the all the search part and, and trying to paint a real picture for you how it was. Today, I'm going to tell you about the investigation, okay? Because the one thing that never stopped was an, an investigation. Now, the search had to be done, and, and you know, you just can't get off of that just in case the baby did wander off, right? But as the, that first day wore on, you better believe Kearney Foster, the, who was the chief of detectives at the time and had all his people out working it, you better believe that he had to look at it from all angles and was looking at it from all angles. So later on that evening, they started, once the search starts getting lined out and, and Kearney was able to meet with all the detectives, et cetera, they get a game plan together. And one of, you know, naturally the first thing to do after they get the initial statements from everybody that was in the house is what? They're going to talk to the neighbors, okay? Remember I told you there were a couple houses not directly across the street and or, or you know, to the side of Evelyn McKnight's, or actually it was the Easley restaurant. Uh, George Easley was Evelyn's common-law husband who lived in the house also. So, they, look, they start talking to the neighbors. It was later on in the evening, and it's different detectives, and two different neighbors reported something that would only fire up the detectives even more. And the first one, like I said, the names y'all, there's no sense in saying it. But one of them, they went and knocked on the door and were talking to him, and the neighbor said, hey, you know what? I got up about 5.45 this morning and uh, looked out the window, and I saw Evelyn's white Grand Am parked in the driveway where she always parks it. Didn't think anything about it. You know, just neighbor having their coffee and, and just happened to look out the window and the neighborhood, which is not really a neighborhood, y'all, just a couple houses, really rural just happens to see the car there. Well, now they know a baby's missing, right? And But that neighbor says a little while later, around 6.45 or so, they happened to look out the window again, and they saw Evelyn's white Grand Am was not there, was not at the residence, not parked in the driveway. And they thought it was strange, and then they thought, well, you know what? She just got back from having surgery, having her tubes reversed, and all that, maybe she had to go to the hospital. And the, that kind of stuck her in their mind. And at about 7.45, the neighbor, the same person, is looking out their front again, and they see Evelyn's Grand Am coming down George White Road from east to west, meaning that it was coming from the Holden side of George White Road. Remember I told you George White Road runs from Holden all the way to Highway 43 in Albany. So kind of follows, uh, goes a little bit south, southeast if you come from Holden below Albany. So the neighbor sees the Grand Am returning home around 745 from the Holden side. Didn't think anything of it. You know, and it saw the vehicle pull into all the way underneath the carport and parked at an angle and said they didn't see anybody immediately get out of the car, but they didn't think anything about it other than it was strange that Evelyn normally didn't park underneath the carport. But they were they had no idea, you know. They had no idea the baby was going to be missing. So detectives also talked to another neighbor who said almost exactly the same thing that they saw around seven in the morning approximately. They saw that Evelyn McKnight's white grandam was not there. Then that neighbor's husband and his brother and a friend were going outside about 740. 7.45-ish in the morning, they were walking around to the back side of their house to go work on a tractor, and what do they see? They see the white Grand Am coming down George White Road, pull into the 
carport, which again they thought was strange because she never parked under the carport. Pull into the carport at like a like a ninety degree angle, and one of them said that they thought they they may have seen a male or possibly Rodney McKnight with with a ball hat on sitting inside the car. Okay, but they didn't think anything of it. Again, they maybe, maybe they went to the grocery store or something. They didn't know. They go on in the backyard and, um, you know, they're working on the tractor. Okay. Now, a little while later, when sugar turns to shit and all the cops start showing up and everybody's showing up and they realize, hey, this baby's missing, the neighbors had reported seeing Bobby Jordan, who is the male uh, friend of George Easley, who's been staying in the house since November and sleeping on the couch. They report him seeing him outside in the front yard working on the truck. They were able to give a description. This is after the Grand Am gets back. They were able to give a description of what he was wearing. And, you know, the detectives take it all down, right? So a lot of shit's going on, and that's just the first day. But, I mean, but they got a lot going on, y'all. I mean, you're trying to get everything lined out. You're trying to start with the investigation. Remember, I told you what the initial statements were of everybody that was in the house, including April McKnight, who was Evelyn's niece, approximately 14 to 16 years old, who said that she put the baby down uh, Matthew to sleep in the crib the night before, all right, and got up the next day looking for the baby, can't find him. Rodney doesn't know where he's at. Evelyn doesn't know where he's at. And April calls Matthew Poplis' mama to sum it all up. Also, one of the neighbors, when, when the search has started, I mean, they're kind of standing in their front yard. I don't want to call it entertainment, but damn, they have certainly, you know, had heard the baby was missing, et cetera. Well, George easily comes home from work because of the situation, and this neighbor supposedly saw George easily approach Bobby Jordan in the front yard and say, hey, man, you know, you got something to say? You know, you got something to tell me? He said, fuck you, I ain't got anything to tell you. He said, I'm going to help look for the baby. And he joined the search team. All right, now this is all different reports that the detectives have taken over, over the time. So what happens? Not that much on that day. And that's, that's 7.15, right? But so you don't quit as a detective. I mean, I, I assure you they were having constant jam sessions or meetings whenever they... You know, who else can we go talk to? Now, they started getting some of your crazy calls in, like Detective Chuck Watts, you know, got a call from somebody in Hammond who, and obviously it was what we call a 103M, a mental nut job, or somebody who wanted to inject themselves in an investigation. This, you know, but every report and lead has to be followed. And this guy called him out and said that they had seen Evelyn and Easley they were coming in to buy a vehicle or something and said that they saw Evelyn carrying what appeared to be a baby, maybe a baby doll, like a rag doll, and that they the two of them were arguing and that he saw Evelyn slamming the baby down on the table. Well, it was bullshit. I mean, obviously this was disproved, but these are the kind of calls that are coming in also. So investigation's not stopped. But... Mr. Kearney did not believe that that baby was abducted, and and but he had to do his job. He had to get this detectives to do the job, and all of them were working it nonstop. And so on July the 16th, they decide, well, you know what? We need to search the residence for any kind of uh, trauma. And Kearney told him, said, look, I want you to find the clothes that Bobby Jordan was wearing that the neighbors described. And I think it was some tan pants that he was wearing outside that day. And so he, t- he sent him to, back to the residence, and he said, listen, go over there and tell George Easley you want to search the residence, and we can do it one of two ways. We can get, we can get a search warrant, which is you know totally understandable. It could be done, but it, to, to save time, you know, you just ask him to sign a waiver to search, and, and 
so they did. And Benita Gill went over there with the other detectives, and that's on, on July 17th, the next day. Detective Curtis and, and Benita went and got Gerald Easley to sign a waiver of search warrant, and they were looking for pants brown in color that belonged to Bobby Jordan. And the search began at 11.15 a.m. And at 1.19 p.m., Benita found a pair of brown pants in the closet of the first bedroom on the left. At 11.21, yeah, 11.21 p.m., they discovered a pillow with a white pillowcase on it, and it had what appeared to be dried blood on it. And at 11.30, she's saying p.m., but a white pair of pants that had what could be blood on it, all right? And so they took that as evidence, and they gave Mr. Easley a search warrant, not a search warrant return, a receipt for the items that were taken from the residence, okay? That's standard procedure. That anytime you take something on a search warrant, you have to leave a receipt, or even if it's not a search warrant, a volunteer search. All right, so what else did they do? On that same day, on, on July 17th, they decide to start re-interviewing the witnesses, the people that were in the house. And so they go to April McKnight's residence in Ponchatoula. Her mama was there. I think her name was Deborah. That's that's Evelyn's sister. And they questioned the questioner again. And they could tell something was a little bit off of her this time. And finally, you know, first she said the same story, and finally she changed her story to that Evelyn, the nanny, had told her that morning when the baby was missing, she said, look, when the cops ask you, don't tell them that I put Matthew to bed last night. And she, and she said, or they might try to take me to jail. Well, this is her aunt. She didn't really understand. She was like, why? She said, just don't tell them. Tell them that you put him to bed. So there's a lie. Right. And in the real kicker of it is April McKnight also admits that Rodney told her that morning that he saw Bobby Jordan standing over the baby with his pants down, masturbating. All right. Now, remember, Bobby said he heard the baby crying. He got him out of the crib, put him on the floor in the living room, which is where Bobby Jordan slept. Now, Bobby Rodney said that uh, he got him out there, put him on the floor, gave him a bottle, and he went in the room with his mama and went, uh, asked to walk to move the car. You know, mama said it looks like rain, but he moved the car, and then decided not to wash it and moves it back out. That's all in that 7 o'clock, 7.30, 8 o'clock time frame, y'all. But then he says that he, he came back in and saw Bobby Jordan with his pants down, masturbating. He said he looked at him. He had a real funny look on his face. And what does Rodney do? He turns off the TV and leaves the baby in the room with Bobby Jordan and goes in his mama's room and allegedly goes to sleep. Okay, that's big. That's big. a big starting point from an, an investigative standpoint, right? And so what do you do? I mean, you, you just keep working it, and you're looking into Bobby Jordan. You're looking into everything. And in fact, one of the detectives got a call from a guy in Independence who, and I told you about this one in Nanny Not the Prelude, and they went out there, and he said, hey, look, you know, a couple years ago, or late 80s, Evelyn was keeping our baby in the baby got severe burns to his head and his arm and his hand, and she took him to the hospital, and she said that he walked into a wall heater, and the doctor said, uh, that's bullshit, okay? No baby, this baby didn't do all this damage to themselves in the wall heater. And he said Evelyn never called to check on the baby after that, and in fact, when his wife saw her, she was in the checkout line of the grocery store, when his wife saw her and Evelyn saw the wife, she left her shit in the line and ran out, okay? Now, these are all things that are coming in. All important 
from an investigative standpoint. Really, though, you don't have squat, I mean, in the grand scheme of things. But on the 19th, July the 19th, so this is four days afterwards, right? The search is still going on. The investigation's going on. And the detective gets a phone call from a female who says, I want to talk to somebody. I know where the baby's at. I know where Matthew's at. But I want to talk to the detective in person. Detectives go to her. And she says that Evelyn asked her brother, and I think his name is Jeffrey, Evelyn went to her brother's house, and they, they were first cousins, I think, but I, I know they were cousins. Evelyn went to her brother's house, like, that day, that evening, late, and went straight into his bedroom and and told him, said, hey, look, you know, I know, where the, I know where the baby is, and I need you to call the sheriff's office and and tell him where he's at. And he's like, what do you mean, you know, where the baby's at? And, and what do you... How can you know this? And she said, because a friend told me that Bobby Jordan killed the baby and that he forced my son to ride with him and they threw him off a bridge off of Highway 42. Now, that's about five or six miles, y'all. Well, not this... The bridge it ended up being was about five or six miles from the residence. But so they get that information in, and now you, you get shit hot, right? Now, so if this is true, I mean, it's fire. But regardless, Willie Graves, who was the chief deputy at the time, called and said, get all the FBI agents, get all the detectives, get all off-duty deputies, and start looking at all the bridges off of 42. They didn't have the exact bridge yet, y'all, at this time. But they just knew that Evelyn had told her cousin that Bobby Jordan murdered the baby and threw him off a bridge. And so they start looking about 6.30 p.m. That's that's when that information was taken at all, okay? And in... A little while later, Willie Graves, the chief deputy who was my sheriff when I was there, called back and said, secure the bridge at LA-42 at Springville because that's where the crime scene was going to be. Now, obviously, they've gotten information. So what was happening, y'all, is during the investigation, Kearney had wanted Rodney and Evelyn to take polygraphs, but more specifically Rodney, and he had actually scheduled it with Don Zulke, who is, to me is, is will always be the guru of all gurus on polygraphs, right? He's been on the board forever. He's doing polygraphs probably 20 years before me, and he's still on the board to this day, okay? And, and I think he's absolutely probably the best uh, alive still in the state of Louisiana. But they get this information, and the FBI agent, Jennifer Love, and Kearney Foster, chief of detectives, go hit up Evelyn, okay? And so what I'm going to do for you now is read, and I'm going to read this, and it's a transcript of the, the interrogation or the interview of Evelyn McKnight by Detective Kearney Foster and... Jennifer Love, who was of the FBI, okay? So I'm going to say their name and then uh, in their statements. And, you know, it's, it's a long deal, y'all, so just listen to it. But it's hugely important. And there's some parts, y'all, we used to use old cassette tapes, and, and the secretaries had to transcribe them. So there's some part that when the, the person that was transcribing it could, either couldn't keep up or they didn't hear it, so it'll say inaudible. You hear me say inaudible. All right. Starts out with Mr. Kearney Foster saying, we're going to ask her in Audible. If you don't mind, I'm going to get a little closer over to you in Audible. Testing one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Testing one, two, three, five, ten, nine. 
5-6-5. This is going to be a taped interview taken on July of 94 at the residence of Miss Easley or Miss McKnight. McKnight says, I hope we're not in a hurry and something inaudible. Foster says, all right, the time now is 12.25 p.m. People present is Kearney Foster with Livingston Parish Sheriff's Office, an agent, and then Agent Love, y'all, with the FBI says, Jennifer, Jennifer Smith Love with the FBI of Baton Rouge. Foster says, and you, your name, state your full name, Evelyn Patricia McKnight, and your date of birth, 8 9 of 62. Foster says, and your level of education, McKnight says 10th. Foster says, all right, before we ask you anything, we want you to understand your rights. We're not arresting you, and we've given you your rights, okay? You have the right to remain silent or to answer questions. We inform you anything you say can be used against you in court. You have a right to an attorney present during questioning if you want one. If you can't afford one, we'll give you one. You'll have the right to stop answering any time for any reason you may have if you feel like you don't want to answer a question. You understand that? McKnight says, I understand. Foster. And you do realize it's being put on a tape recorder. McKnight says, yeah. Foster. Are you willing to give a statement of your own free will? McKnight says, yeah. Foster. All right. Then answer this lady's questions right now. McKnight says, yeah. Jennifer Love, FBI says, okay, Evelyn, we want to talk about the morning that Matthew disappeared from your residence. We want you to tell us everything you can that you know happened and to create what your son Rodney told you about that day. We want you to go in chronological order. We're just going to let you talk, and then if we have any questions, we'll ask you those questions, okay? McKnight says, from a start, the very beginning, Jennifer Lowe says, yes. McKnight, um, Rodney got up that morning. Well, my husband had got up and went to work. In a little while, Rodney had got up and come in the room and had wanted to know if he could uh, feed the puppy. Um, and I guess he did. He was in and out the room a couple of times. Um, the baby had woke up. He had, um, the baby was in here playing and it was up and down the hallway playing with the little puppy and just, you know, just playing around. He, uh, said that he had made a pallet on the living room floor. FBI. Who said that? McKnight. Rodney. And him and the baby was in there watching TV. He had, um, then he, he came in and wanted to know if he could wash my car. And I said, I didn't know. It was too early in the morning. And, you know, he really didn't need to, but he did. I did it, agreed to let him pull my car up here on the car part on the rocks and help wash the car. He came back inside and he wanted to know what if car wash and stuff to do and maybe he shouldn't fool with washing the car. No, and I was telling him it looks like it was going to rain and maybe he shouldn't fool with washing the car. So he didn't. He said that he parked the car back out where it goes and came back inside and um, got in the bed with me. He said, I asked about the baby and he said the baby was sleeping in the living room. He should have he, um, should I continue talking? Okay. Um, he said that the baby was sleeping in the living room. I said, well, Rodney, go turn off the TV if he's sleeping. And he did. He went in, turned off the TV. He came back in here and got in bed for a few minutes. And he's seen, watch, you know, he was hugged to me. And he laid in my bed for a little while. And he got back up again. And he was gone for a few minutes. And um, I didn't, um, he didn't come back and say anything. I don't know if I went off to sleep or evidently I went to sleep. And the next time I knew, he came back in my room again. He got in my bed and he was crying. And he started telling me what he, what Bobby, 
what he saw Bobby doing in the living room. The baby, oh, um, he was in the living room masturbating. Kearney Foster, give us the details of what he said. He didn't say that this morning, McKnight. Well, the details are, he said, um, Bobby was standing in the living room with his pants down and playing with himself. And I asked, I asked, I said, is Matt all right? And he didn't say nothing for a little while. And then he said, no. And so I asked him, what's wrong? What's wrong? And he started to tell me. He said that when he got back up, that went back in there, that he said that he, I don't know, maybe he heard something or maybe he just, you know, thought Bobby could have done him something more after what he'd seen with his pants down. He went into Amanda's room, which is straight across, and he said he looked out the window and he seen Bobby leaving him going toward my car with something in his arms. And he said he went into the living room and Matt wasn't there. So he said he went outside right up to my car, up to Bobby, and asked, what are you going? What are you doing? Where are you going? And Bobby told him somewhere, French Settlement. That's what Rodney said. And Bobby told him not to tell anybody or he had hurt him. And Rodney said he put the baby seat, put the baby seat, of my car and he told Rodney to get in and he made Rodney go with him and watch him throw that little baby over the bridge. It was a bridge um, in Springfield. I don't know just what bridge, but Rodney said there was a couple of bridges and then there was a big bridge and he stopped and got out and he got the baby out and threw the baby and then he threw something after him. I guess it was the baby's blanket. And then Rodney came back and said that Bobby pulled the car all the way up under my carport. And Rodney just got out and he came back to bed. And he got in the bed. And that's when he told me, you know, everything that he, he saw and everything he had to ride and look at. FBI. What was it he had to look at? McKnight. The, you know, going my yard and seeing Bobby put the baby in the car and Bobby made him get in the car and Bobby made him go with him and he seen Bobby throw Matt's body over the bridge rail. FBI, uh-huh, McKnight. I guess then when Bobby must have put my car back or wherever, y'all found my car, then that's where he had put it at. Foster. Let me ask you, did Bobby... Did you say anything towards Bobby? McKnight, no. Foster, why not? McKnight, I didn't know what to do. All I knew is I took, you know, it was all inside of me, and I know that Bobby knew, and that's why, you know, I was inaudible. You know that, that you know, that I wanted Bobby out of my house, but I never once talked to him. I haven't talked to him since this whole thing happened. I hadn't said nothing to him other than he had asked me one time about his medicine, and I told him, I don't know, FBI. Did Bobby try to talk to you? McKnight, yeah. Out of the carport, he kept asking me how I was doing, FBI. What else did he say? McKnight, I think that was all. Well, he asked how I was doing, and another sitting at the table, and he came in and said, what did the doctor say about your surgery? But he really didn't talk to me much, and I didn't talk to him at all. Foster, how many people have you told this to? Be careful when you answer that. McKnight, today? As of today, how many people? Foster, yeah. McKnight, well, as of today, now my whole family knows you. Y'all know. Foster, let's start from Friday. Who'd you tell Friday to today, McKnight? I didn't tell anybody Friday. I didn't tell anybody until day before yesterday, and I didn't know what if Foster. Who'd you tell McKnight? Jeffrey Pierre, my nephew, Foster. Okay, what did you tell Dietra McKnight? Foster. Okay, what did you tell Deborah McKnight? McKnight. Deborah McKnight? Foster. 
Is that her name, Deborah McKnight? McKnight, yeah. What'd you tell her? McKnight. April's mother? I didn't tell Debbie. What you mean mean that? I know Foster. Mm-hmm. McKnight. And that I've been knowing all along? I never told Debbie that. The FBI. What well, well did you did you tell her anything? McKnight. No, only thing I told her was after all that when she called me. No, the last time I talked to her is when y'all y'all come here the, the other day for me to ride with y'all to go get Rodney. And she just, you know, she wanted to know what was going on and all, and we've really been talking about it, is just Rodney needed to be polygraphed in April. But as far as me telling her anything, I didn't tell her it. Anybody. I was too scared to tell anybody, but I never once told Debbie, and I still haven't told Debbie, that me and Rodney knew and nobody else knew. FBI. Well, let me ask you this. How did you tell Jeffrey? Tell us about that. How that came about, other than you and your son. He was the first, McKnight. Jeffrey Pierre was the very first person I told FBI. And how did that come about, McKnight? Well, the day before yesterday, I, well, I was in the hospital, and I got him to release me that night because I just couldn't keep going on and on and on and not telling somebody. No matter how scared I was and how scared Rodney was, somebody had to be told. So I got out of the hospital, and the next morning I got out and um, went to see my mom because she's been in and out of the hospital with all this going on, and I went to Jeffrey's house. I got my sister, uh, my sister-in-law, Linda, to take me to Jeffrey's house. And I went in and I knocked on the door. He was in the bed and I went in and I went to his room and I said, I got to tell you something. I just, I mean, I didn't know how I even start to tell him. And I still did not want Rodney to be involved in this. So I told him that someone had told me, I just made up a name, that somebody told him, that they seen a car leaving out and threw it, threw something over the bridge, and they didn't know what it was. And I said, Jeffrey, please go make this phone call for me today so that little baby can be got out of that river because I know whatever this person threw out of that car, that man was that baby, and I did know. I knew he threw the baby out of the car. I know what car it was. I knew it was a baby because my son told me everything, but I didn't tell Jeffrey that. I knew that it was my car, and I knew it was the baby because I didn't know, I didn't want nobody to know. I didn't want anybody to know that Rodney, all I knew is I wanted the baby out of that river. So I asked him, I said, I sat down over and over, and I said, you got to get this straight. You got to get that, um, phone number and call these people and tell them that you saw somebody throw something over there, over a bridge, and let them go look so they can find this baby, you know? I didn't tell him, you know, I didn't tell him that I go look. No, I didn't tell him I knew it was the baby. I just told him, you know, maybe it was, and I just felt like it was, but really, I did. I knew, I knew exactly what it was and who done it. And because Rodney told me, and I believe every word that he told me, I was just too scared to tell anybody because I didn't want my kids taken away. And it was just, I went into shock because, you know, he came, got in my bed and started telling me all this, and he was shaking, and I was shaking. I went into shock, and it's, inside of me and it's been inside of me and it's tearing us apart and i'm sorry that i didn't tell and i'll take any polygraph test y'all want i'll do anything y'all want i didn't do it and he didn't do it bobby done it and i'm sorry i'm just sorry i didn't come forth and tell y'all fbi how did bobby kill the baby mcknight i don't know rodney tell me he just said he seen his body going outside with him, and that's when he went and got in the car with him. I don't know how he killed him. Foster, inaudible. McKnight, I don't know. I mean, Rodney, I asked Rodney. I said, Rodney, was the baby crying or moving? And he said, Matt, Matt never moved, Mama.
and he was crying. I just sorry I didn't tell. I want to do everything right from now on, everything I had to do, and that needs to be done. He'll be punished for what he done. I don't know why I didn't tell. I know I was, why I didn't tell. I, it's I, I was scared, and I was just scared for Rodney. I was scared to death for Rodney, FBI. Well, going back to uh, the guy, your nephew, that you told about it, did he ask you any questions about this? Did he become inquisitive? The nephew that you told about, you wanted to make this telephone call so they could find this baby? What was his reaction to what you told him, McKnight? Um, um, he didn't know what to do. He started crying. He started shaking, you know. Not, not crying, crying, but he was just shaking. I mean, everybody in his family loved the baby. All he wanted to know is who killed him. I just said, uh, you know, some people, just some friends, you know, and they don't want me to say nothing about everything. And he, you know, he was just like, how come you haven't told the authorities now that you know? I said, I just found out. They just came over to my house last night, real, real late last night after I got home from the hospital. They came to the house, and they told me they saw somebody do something, and it could be, it could have been my car, and it could have been Matt, you know? I, I, you know, I just, I asked them please to go to a phone today and call and have somebody check it out. But FBI, FBI interrupts. Did he ever figure out that it was that, what, how did you know that Rodney was involved? McKnight, he didn't know Rodney was involved until last night, until he went up there with y'all last night and Rodney gave his statement. I still lied. I still didn't tell you that. I knew Friday. Nobody knew, not even Jerry, not even my mama. Only me and Rodney had been knowing this, and Jeffrey still didn't know until after everything was said and done and family was here. Everybody was here, and I still hadn't told anybody that just my family and Jeff, Jerry and Jeffrey, you know, just just right in my family is the only ones that knew that knew, and Rodney had been knowing this since it happened. But I, Jeffrey, did not know anything about Rodney being involved. Foster, do you know of anybody who has insurance policies on the baby, McKnight? The only person I know of is Robin had come in a few weeks ago and that she took out insurance on her baby and uh, uh, the baby's daddy, uh, uh, Foster. In other words, you don't have in insurance on the baby, D. McKnight. No, I don't have no insurance on him, FBI. And, and let me ask you this. Did you pay for the insurance policy that Robin or Dwight took out? McKnight, no, FBI. How did it come up? How did Robin bring up the subject she was getting insurance on Matt? McKnight, when she'd come in here, I was paying all my bills. I was sitting at the bar. Maybe Matt had been there and she came to pick him up or maybe she just appeared. But she appeared and I was paying all my bills. When I got to my insurance, she said, who do you have insurance with? And I told her it was at State National. And then she called and she wanted to know how much I paid, how much I had on each child, FBI. Did she know how much? Did you tell her how much you had on each child? Foster. Uh, the tape ended and we had to change sides. It's 20 minutes to one. Okay, continue. McKnight. Uh, she wanted to know, you know, how much I had on each one of my children. So she said that she had just took out insurance on her and Matt, and um, I don't remember how much she took out, how much she said at this time she took out, but I've heard since all this has been going on, I think it was like ten or 10000 or maybe one of them was twenty or something, but um, I don't remember who she took it out with, but it was supposed to have been somebody that maybe was a friend of hers or something, because she said he was real nice, and he always comes and talks in Audible had talked her into 
taking it out while the baby was real young because it was cheaper. All right, y'all, I'm going to stop it here for today because it's so long and we're 45 minutes in. Uh, and you've got to keep hearing this because still an investigation part, all right? The next episode, I expect to finish the initial investigation and get into the recovery uh, of of Matthew, all right? And a couple of Real Life Real Crime announcements. If you own a business and you want to advertise with Real Life Real Crime, email Cindy, that's C-Y-N-D-I, at realliferealcrime.com. We'd love to do for you what we do for the national companies. And also, justice for Barbara Blunt. Please keep calling in your tips, okay? Things are being worked. It's not going to happen overnight, y'all. And, and the, the new podcast and all that, the don't call it a cold case, it's going to come. But I can't tell you exactly what point yet. So please call in your tips. No tip is too small or unimportant. And, of course, always we're praying for justice for Courtney Coco. And let's see. I hope y'all had a great 4th. Uh, July 25th at Lachine. That's L-E and then separate word, capital C-H-I-E-N, Brewery in downtown Denver Springs. I'm going to be doing a meet and greet. And Buddy's Barbecue is going to be providing the food. And I'm telling you, it's fire or that's my word for good. You're going to love it. And they're going to have a band playing. Uh, it's no charge to get in. And it's just, you know, local support and local, y'all. And I'm going to be there signing autographs and taking pictures and doing whatever. And that's from 4 to 8 p.m. on July 25th. Also, the live show I'm doing in Arlington, Texas, is on August the 14th. Go to eventbrite.com to get your tickets. The I think there's some VIPs left, but the, uh, 75 VIP tickets, and they are they are $60 a piece, and that gets you a seat at table, and it gets you in an hour early into the venue, and where I'll sign, uh, it gets you a free headshot or whatever it is that you want me to sign. Um, we'll provide that for you, and after that, about an hour, the, the main doors are going to open, and about eight eight something, I'm going to the the doors open for VIP at six thirty. It's at seven thirty. The main doors open at eight something. I'm gonna take the stage and do it's in your face, audience interactive podcast. It's only for a couple hundred people, y'all, and so I'm gonna be right there, and everybody will be able to see, everybody will be able to hear, and we're gonna drink a lot, and I'm gonna tell you a shocking story. Okay, I'm gonna get done. I'll I'll stay and sign autographs and take pictures until they kick me out. So go to vibrite.com. For that, and we're staying at the the Hilton Garden Inn on Lamar. That's uh, that's L L A M A R something like that in Arlington, Texas. If you want to stay where we're staying, we've I've secured a rate. I think it's like forty or fifty dollars cheaper than what it normally is. And so we you go to the Hilton Garden Inn, Arlington on Lamar, and. Use code RLRC at checkout, or if you call in to book it, tell them real life or crime, and you get to, you'll get that discount. It's going to be a great show. Can't wait to see everybody there. September 25th, I have a live show uh, in Memphis, Tennessee, at High Tones. Those tickets are on sale. Eventbrite.com. You better get them because there's only like 150 people for this show. And then, of course, our crew bash is February 5th. VIP tickets and regular tickets are on sale at eventbrite.com. February 4th, we're having a private VIP event, a meet and greet and throwdown party. We'll have it at Happy's Irish Pub on 3rd Street. We're staying in the same Hilton, the Capital Center Hilton. When you book the room, use the code RLRC. And people are already booking and buying these tickets also, y'all. And then the VIP tickets, y'all, are $60. The regular tickets are $40. Saturday, the VIP gets you in a half an hour early to the Texas club so you can get your seating or wherever you want to stand at or whatever. And I, I'll, again, we'll meet and greet everybody as they come through the door. And then I'm going to do a, a live Never before heard podcast. If you were at the last one or the last two, you, you know what I'm talking about. It's going to be adult, great time, 
and uh, when I get done, we'll do a raffle for Lopa again, and then Chase Tyler Band is going to take the stage and rock the house just like they did the last time. We're blessed to have the Texas Club again, y'all, the Texas world-famous Texas Club. What a great place to have the crew bash. So that's February 4th and 5th. Uh, fourth, if you you know do the VIP, fifth for everybody else, it's going to be a great show, great time. I'm going to do what I do. Chase Tyler's going to do what he does. Go to eventbrite.com, get those tickets. I promise you this will sell out, and that's like seven months away. Other than that, I just want to thank each and every one of y'all. I love you, and I appreciate you. I can never say that enough. It's not fluff. I mean it. Stick with me on the story, y'all, on, on any night. You don't know the details. They, you can go read whatever you want to online. It's not that much, but I've got the whole thing. Patron members, you'll have all these documents put up on the patron-only Facebook page. And uh, be a hero. You know, of course, all the social media stuff I'm supposed to say, y'all, you know, please go leave me a review on iTunes and... Oh, the Podcast Awards. Go to www.podcastawards.com. Click on Vote, and they ask you for an email. You put in your email, and you make up a password, and you go into the categories of vote. Now, let's talk about it real quick because it's very, very important to us, y'all. I think I'm up for like three or four categories. Um, Best male host, uh, and so you click on Best male host and scroll down until you see Real Life, Real Crime. Best True Crime, same thing. Click on the categories, scroll down to you see Real Life, Real Crime. The Storytelling and Drama, that's the one I won in 2019. Click on that, scroll down to you see Real Life, Real Crime, and hit it. And I think they have a spot for Most Influential Podcaster. If you would put Woody Overton for that, I'd appreciate it. Now, while you're in there, my good buddy, Jim Chapman with Local Leaders Podcast and a great friend of Real Life Real Crime, Antelopa and everything that we, he backs up everything that we do. Great guy. Look, he's nominated under I think best male host and under the business category. Please click on business and go down to Local Leaders Podcast and give him your vote. So and in my if you would take a couple of minutes to do that, and y'all, you can only vote once from each email that you own, okay? I know lifers want to you know, vote a thousand times a day, and I get that because you're the best fans in the world, and I love you very much, but you can only vote once from each email you own or they're going to kick your vote out. So that being said, I love y'all. I appreciate you. Thank you. And if you are a listener that is in um, Pakistan and you want to become an organ donor, go to lopa.org and take about two minutes to fill out to be an organ donor. You don't have to be from Louisiana, but LOPA, Louisiana Organ Procurement Agency, they're saving lives, y'all, and do a lot of great research and other stuff, but they're a nonprofit. You know, please sign up and be an organ donor. And I'm Woody Overton, your host of Real Life, Real Crime, the podcast. Until next time or ever, don't let me catch you down on Murder Bayou. Peace. Real Crime is a true crime podcast brought to you by Woody Overton and executive producer Toby Template.